You're listening to the Bike Show on Resonance 104.4 FM. Here is a factory in the heart of industrial Britain, a planned response to the world's demand for bicycles. This huge organisation is controlled from the administrative offices. A most important one is the drawing office, where a bicycle starts its life. We'll go into the chief designer's office and hear him tell two visitors just how a bicycle is made. I could go miles and miles on one of these, Father. So you should. There's a hundred years of bicycle manufacture behind that model. It's our latest type. Strong, reliable, yet light in weight. Rust and weatherproof, comfortable to ride and easy to steer. I'd like one of these, Father. Well, I could do a good many miles of it myself, even at my age. Further than you could on that. <laughs> Listen, I'm not quite as old as all that. Welcome to The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston, here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Over the next two weeks, we're going to be telling the story of an iconic name in bicycle manufacturing, perhaps the most iconic of them all the Rally Bicycle Company of Nottingham here in England. Do you remember your first rally? Well, I certainly remember mine. It was a commando model, a child's bike in army camouflage green with a three-speed hub operated by an extremely exciting twist grip on the handlebar. It was a terrible bike, but as an eight-year-old, I loved it. The history of rally is a fascinating story and not just about the company and the bikes it made, or even the bicycle industry more widely. But more than that, it's a tale that holds a mirror to much deeper and more profound changes in British society, as well as the forces of economic globalisation. With me to tell the story, I'm very grateful to have the bicycle historian Tony Hadland, author of a tremendous new book about rally. It's a long story, and to do it justice, we're going to take it in two parts, this week and next week and I'm loosely describing them as the rise and the fall. In this week's show, we're going to talk about the rise. How, in just a few decades, did a small backstreet workshop in Nottingham become the world's biggest bicycle manufacturer? The story begins in the mid-1880s, where there was a handful of small companies in Nottingham making the new safety bicycle. That's the bicycle with the rear-wheel drive and two equal-sized wheels, so quite different from the large-wheeled, high-wheeler, the ordinary or penny-farthing bicycle of a decade or so earlier. One of those companies, which went by the name of Woodhead, Ellis and Angua, named after its three directors, had its premises on an unremarkable street in Nottingham called Rally Street. Tony Hadland takes up the story. They were a backstreet operation, uh, the three directors and about a dozen chaps turning out a few bicycles a week. And uh, they caught the attention of a chap called Frank Bowden. And uh, it was this original little company called Rally simply because it was in Rally Street quite a happenstance, really, that they ended up with that name, uh, that drew his attention as somebody who was a convert to cycling because of his ill health. And it was cycling that had saved his life. And as an entrepreneur, he then decided to combine this interest, this health interest with money-making interest, and he bought into this company and turned it into what was eventually the biggest bicycle company in the world. So let's talk about Frank Bowden, because he and his family, his son subsequently, were at the helm of Rally. He's an interesting guy, isn't he? 
British guy, but had a, a very atypical upbringing. Very atypical. Uh, he tended to portray himself in later life as coming from a, a relatively comfortable manufacturing background. In fact, it was a bit more tenuous than that. He was brought up in the uh, rope-making district of Exeter, where his father learnt the trade of being a rope-maker and a hemp and sacking-maker. And his father set up in business in Bristol and ran a small manufacturing company there, quite tiny, with a dozen or 20 employees. It was pretty tenuous. His father went bust a couple of times. That was something that I discovered by going through the old newspapers there. And his father, in fact, died in early middle age, so Frank was left rather alone. He had to go off and make his own living. He'd been quite well educated. His father was able to afford that before everything went wrong. And Frank uh, became uh, a clerk in a solicitor's office and then entered uh, a competition uh, to be a civil servant. And this was for a position in Hong Kong. And he beat about 100 other people to this position, so he was a, a cute cookie. Went out to Hong Kong to this civil service job. And on the side, it wouldn't be permitted these days, I'm sure, but on the side, he was allowed to speculate in stocks and shares. Hong Kong was a a very small place by today's standards, but it was also pivotal in in trade between the East and West and growing in importance. And there were institutions such as um, what became the HSBC, the Honkers and Shankers, or the Hong Kong and Shanghai Bank. And Bowden bought shares in that. He bought shares in railways in different parts of the world, uh, South America and so on, mining, uh, Swiss newspapers, British theatres, anywhere where there was a likelihood of making money, he bought shares. And he ended up making a lot of money very early in life. But at the same time, his health suffered because of the climate out in Hong Kong. So he then moved to California, uh, met a Californian lady, married into society in that neck of the woods, and his first child uh, was born out there. And then he came back to England, still suffering with bad health. And he went to Harrogate, because in those days he went to Harrogate to get the spa waters and get a spa treatment. This was about when? This was in the uh, 1880s. And um, the doctor said, forget about the spa waters and all that nonsense. Get yourself onto wheels. Um, Get yourself a bike or a trike. And so he went off, and in those days, trikes were a big thing. So he started off uh, with a trike, because it was easier to balance, and found that this had a huge uh, impact on improving his health. He did a lot of touring on it, and then progressed to a bicycle. And he was walking through a street in, in London one day and saw in the window this particular bicycle, new a safety bicycle made by Raleigh. So he went up to Nottingham to see if he could uh, talk to them about making something specially for him and ended up uh, effectively buying the company. Because he saw in Raleigh high quality and technical innovation. Indeed, yes. Uh, this, this was um, one of the things that perhaps has been ignored a little bit, but Paul Angois, who was the son of a French immigrant, uh, was the technical director of the company, and he was very hot on, on technical in- innovation and quality. The combination of the two were the things that made it. So in technical terms, one of the interesting innovations that Raleigh had was a bottom bracket that was integrated into the tubes of the frame rather than bolted on. Indeed, it seems sort of obvious these days because bottom brackets are an integral part of the frame and have been for such a long time. But in the early days of bicycles, they were a sort of bolt-on fitting which added weight, complexity and, and uh, made a weaker frame. So there were lots of little details like that. Also, uh, an easily removable chain wheel. In those days, uh, variable gears were in their infancy and one of the simplest methods was simply to stop your bicycle when you came to the bottom of a big hill, get out a spanner and put on a, a different size chain wheel and rally specialised in that 
kind of thing. It seems incredibly crude now, but the fact that they did that as a package and offered it to purchasers was something which was novel. Their marketing boasted the fact that you could change gear in less than 15 minutes. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Unbelievable. So the 1890s, the first safety bicycle was really the second bicycle boom. This is after the high-wheeler boom of the 1870s. This is the safety bicycle. This is bicycles where each of the two wheels is the same size and there's a, broadly speaking, diamond-shaped frame uniting them and a chain driving the rear wheel. Yeah. A lot more people were getting on their bikes. But who were those people? Well, uh, mostly they were fairly rich people because the cost of a bicycle was considerable. If you take, for example, the sort of typical wages that somebody... Well, I take my own village where I live. The carter in my village in 1900 used to earn £26 a year, and out of that he had to pay his rent. Well, a top-end rally in those days was 26 quid. So it was a a year's wages for a lot of working people. So uh, it was mostly the rich, unless you bought a a hand-me-down, and there weren't that many of those around. So it was a a wealthy man's sport, uh, and, and... Sport is a key element to it because although bicycles were bought for transport, it was mostly for social occasions, a sort of Sunday afternoon uh, novelty ride, if you like, and uh, for people who were keen racers in the same way that uh, today somebody might go out and buy a hot motorbike and take it to trials riding or something like that, then young men were buying bicycles to scorch about on. (laughs) So when Frank Bowden bought into the company... How many bikes were they producing and what was his plan for increasing production? Because that was his desire, wasn't it, was to increase the volume but retain the high quality. That's right. Uh, bicycles were p- pretty much made to order by rally in those days, and they were really turning out something like between a dozen and 20 a week. It was very, very small production. What um, Bowden did was to put more money into it and to use the facilities that existed in Nottingham. And the reason that one of the reasons why Nottingham became a centre of bicycling was that there was already a lot of uh, technology there from the lace trade, because going back to the Middle Ages, textiles had been important as an industry, and that had become mechanised and particularly into the 1870s, about the time of the Franco-Prussian War. This is why people came from France, like Paul Angois' father came as a pattern designer for mechanised production of Chantilly lace. So there was this skill base of light engineering and there were buildings which had been built for lace manufacture. There was surplus capacity, in fact, just round the corner from Raleigh itself. And so they were able to expand into these lace works. And uh, over the next few years, it was a turbulent period with companies being reformed, rally companies, uh, about uh, four times over a decade. They were reformed in different ways, different financial deals to try to deal with the expansion. But they took more and more space. And um, the difficulty, the, the strength and the difficulty at the same time was that they offered a huge range. They changed models every year and everything was bespoke. So mass production was very difficult. And they were trying to do this in multi-storey buildings designed for manufacture again you couldn't get a flow that you could on on the flat with a big factory a big flat factory so it was a, it was a difficult time in the early days but Bowden was very ambitious uh, he even set up a, a, a place in America to try to sell into the American market which was a, a very difficult one because the Americans were really good at mass production and they didn't offer all these frills they offered cheap and cheerful bicycles and now whereas when rally tried to export to America They were offering all sorts of frills, but at high price, and you never quite knew when you were going to get your bike. So could we look at Nottingham at this point in the early years of the bicycle as a kind of 
Silicon Valley type of place with a lot of different small companies all vying with each other for the latest patents, the latest innovations, the best talent, the best people to come and work for them. At, at a moment when cycling was on the up and it was a question of can you reach that scale at which you become the winning company? So it's a process of acquisition of, of, of different companies and mergers and, and that kind of thing. Is that, is that an accurate picture of, of the way things were? I think it is very much, not just Nottingham, but there was a sort of triangle, if you like, between Nottingham, Coventry and Birmingham, the sort of in, industrial heartland of the country. These were the places where most bicycle manufacture took place. And cycle manufacture was very much at the cutting edge. Uh, a lot of uh, what went into car, motorcycle and aircraft design came out of um, bicycle mechanics uh, at the, because they were taking small amounts of, of light material and taking them to the max, if you like, instead of crude engineering, which had been around for years, things like water wheels and windmills and things like that. This is more akin to watch work in a sense, but watch work that's strong enough to move people around. And it's not for nothing that the Wright brothers, for example, were bicycle mechanics. You know, there's a crossover of these technologies. And people were poached, ideas were poached, people, people bought into syndicates. Uh, you'd get a top designer in one company, he'd be poached rather like footballers you know they went on transfer and so what were the key technical aspects that rally had that accounted for its success as well as everything else the, the production the marketing were there any mm. things that rally had that really gave it the edge well uh, yes eventually of course everybody catches up as with all these technologies but rally were very early into the use of pressed metal uh, sort of technology where you take flat sheets of metal and then you successively press it to form it into a three-dimensional shape and we're talking here about things like the fork crown and the bottom bracket itself, which is quite a complex item. It's, it's tubular, but it's got uh, also tubular sockets coming out of it for the various tubes to intersect with. And the technology started in Germany, and then the Americans really perfected it. And Raleigh were very, very good at going to America and Germany and spotting the technology. Over many decades, they were back and forth all the time. You tend to think that in the Victorian era, because of the difficulties of transport, that people didn't go to America much. But Bowden, being married to an American lady, having American in-laws and having lived in America, was very aware of what went on there. So he and his uh, chief directors and technical people were back and forth all the time. You can see on the passenger lists that are now available uh, which, uh, which boat they went on and all this kind of thing. And they brought back this uh, press technology. That was one of the key things. And it was out of that that the... Uh, the, the slogan which Raleigh used for many years, the all-steel bicycle, came from. I mean, these days people would tend to sneer perhaps a little bit at that, but it was really quite important because things like bottom brackets and fork crowns tended to be cast before, so they, they weren't uh, pressed light steel. They were, they were heavier items, and uh, so this was a, a very good thing. It made the bike lighter, it made it stronger. It was cheaper to make once you'd invested in the machinery. Another thing, another early technology they brought into was uh, the hub gear, the Archer hub gear, because um, various gearing devices had been tried for quite some years, but they were very cumbersome, uh, awkward to use, heavy, expensive, not user-friendly. And uh, Bowden jumped on this idea of a, a three-speed hub. There'd been a successful two-speed before that, but that was somewhat limited. But that had proved the principle of a small, compact hub gear. And uh, he managed to buy up the patents to two competing three-speeds, so the competition didn't get uh, easy access to it immediately either, and then marketed them as the Sturmey Archer gear. 
But not all of uh, the technical innovations and the acquisitions of new technologies were successful, right? No, he had the odd bummer here and there. Uh, one of those was uh, wood wheels, um, Fairbanks wood rims. Uh, Fairbanks was a famous manufacturer of banjos, cutting edge, uh, really, in New England. And banjos have a body which is laminated plywood. And so the same sort of laminated ply technology was applied to rims. Now, this is OK under uh, sort of racing conditions in, in, in the dry and where you can spend money on uh, making sure you've got the best components. And wood rims were used for racing for a very long time in certain situations, not road racing so much, but uh, track racing. But as a general solution for everyday riding, which is what Bowden thought they would be, uh, not so good. And he invested heavily in this, set up a plant in uh, Draycott near uh, Nottingham and lost an awful lot of money. So this was one of his uh, one of his few ideas that wasn't successful. Is it possible to talk about the ethos and the management style of Frank Bowden looking back and, and to what extent did that continue on you know, after his time when he, uh, he retired and, and mm. died? Yes, Frank Bowden was, uh, was eagle-eyed on, on every penny, as somebody once wrote. Uh, so he was, he was um, not a soft touch, but he was very good at making money and he did see the, the virtue in making sure that people were adequately remunerated. They may, might not be generously remunerated, but they were adequately remunerated and in rather good conditions. And his son, uh, Harold, uh, who succeeded him after the First World War, uh, took this a step further. Uh, Harold was very much involved in um, in politics uh, and in management with the Confederation of British Industry and so on. And uh, the, there was a, a lot of negotiation balancing going on there between capitalism and what the workers wanted. Uh, we have to bear in mind that there'd been the revolution in Russia towards the end of the First World War and people in the West were very conscious of this. And um, Harold Bowden was uh, really uh, a pioneer of what was termed um, paternalistic welfareism, where he was quite uh, straight with the workers. He said, look, we, could, we can't give you everything overnight here. Um, and at times he actually negotiated pay cuts because they said, you know, if we can't make these bicycles cheap enough, we're going to go out of business, so no one's going to have a job. So he would be very straight in that way and quite, quite firm and hard. But at the same time, he provided good working conditions. He communicated with the workers. He had actually worked... He had, he had done an apprenticeship. He'd been pulled out of Cambridge University. His father had said, no, drop that. Come here, come to the factory, learn how it's done, and you will succeed me. But you've got to start with a lathe. So he did an engineering apprenticeship. Then he had to learn how to sell the things. So he had to go out on the road for some years, selling uh, in, in, in the regions and so on. So he'd got his hands dirty. He knew how to talk to people. And he would go and talk to people on the shop floor. He would talk to customers. So the communication was good. They produced um, lots of facilities facilities in the way of uh, sports clubs. They had a ballroom uh, which uh, the, the, the work people could use. They always used the term work people instead of workers. They, they, that was quite rigorously used. They had all kinds of hobby clubs, sports grounds, clinics and things like that. And that was a hallmark, particularly in the 1930s, of the rally approach. And the general strike of 1926, rally work people uh, didn't go on strike? Hardly at all. There was a sort of minor uh, strike in one area on one day, I think, but for, it really was relatively unaffected, and I think that's a tribute to the success uh, of this communication. So as we head into the late 20s and early 30s, this really becomes the era of 
mass bicycle usage Indeed. and Rally is scaling up its production. Are they doing anything interesting in terms of mass production and learning from Henry Ford or even coming up with their own methods? Yes, indeed. They looked at all these uh, techniques which were used in other industries. They, they literally did go and see Henry Ford and they rejected uh, some of his processes. They, they, they acknowledged that for what Ford was doing, it was fine. But because they did a lot more different lines and a lot more bespoke stuff, they didn't go completely with the Ford approach. But they also looked at what the French were doing in a number of uh, ways. The French were making a lot of use of automated conveying and Raleigh took that on. They went and visited people like Peugeot and Citroën and also the use of uh, female labour, which had been used in in wartime for munitions and that sort of thing, but hadn't been used to such a large extent as in France. So why do you think Raleigh did adhere very closely to this idea of customising the bicycle, which really has its roots in their very earliest days as a workshop where you would make your bicycle order and it would be built for you. They, they liked to do that. What was the thinking behind that? Were they really trying to provide something personal or were they more cynically trying to price the demand curve and give what's called added value uh, to, to people who are willing to pay more, whereas they produce a cheaper bicycle uh, for, for people at the, at, the, at the bottom of the market? Well, I think re- really the latter. I mean, the whole exercise in the final analysis was about making money um, and uh, they saw higher margins if you could make something which could be sold in a, in a bespoke way. You had the contrast with what the Americans had done in the 1890s uh, and early 1900s where they were selling very restricted designs very, very cheaply, which didn't last terribly long. And well, the bicycles didn't last The bicycles very long. didn't last terribly long, yeah. And uh, and Raleigh pitched themselves deliberately at a, at a higher quality end of things. Uh, in fact, the, the best rallies were really at the, at, at the top level. And the difficulty uh, in, in marketing for Raleigh, in a sense, was how far you shaded that down because you have this sort of aspirational thing. You have a top of the range, as, as any product manufacturer does, uh, which you try to get people interested in. And not everybody can afford that, but they can afford something further up the scale. So you play between something that's deliberately very cheap and, and not very nice uh, and somewhere along that scale between the cheap end and, and your best end. You're trying to, to move people as high up that level as possible. And Raleigh did this at, at times with an almost ridiculous number of steps. That for, for a sort of roadster bicycle, you might find there were a dozen or so different basic variants. And within each of those, you had maybe half a dozen variants again. So that made it quite complicated for them. So, Tony, you mentioned the roadster there. And the roadster was one of two essentially core bicycles, which is the Roadster and the sort of sport type of bicycle. Yes. Talk us through those two designs. Right. Um, well, e- each of those were, were categories, really, and uh, just as today, you get a, a variety of different interpretations. But uh, roadsters were the volume, really, and uh, you had everything from a very basic single-speed version, which was uh, using sort of rivets, really, rather than brazing or welding uh, as much as possible, to uh, the most elegant versions. And in the Edwardian era, for example, you had a, a different type of frame, an X-frame, which was not even uh, recognisably the same as a standard diamond frame. It, it look, you looked at it and think, oh, that's, that's something a bit special. And, of course, you could charge more for it. So you had that, that approach. But these are, these are bicycles which are essentially sit up and beg. Sit up and beg, yeah. Um, with a, uh, a, a full chain case. Absolutely. And well, a rack on the back, probably. Yeah, 
I mean, the nearest thing to to them today would be the typical sort of bicycle you'd find in in Holland, for the example. The Dutch bike, yes, yeah. the Dutch bike, the the British equivalent of the Dutch bike. A dress guard on the back for the ladies, uh, a full chain case. Rally made a huge um, industry out of chain cases. They supplied them to other people. In fact, they they would supply them to competitors. The, the full enclosing chain case, and of course, your chain was then protected from the elements and would last years and years. You and you were know. protected from the chain. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but it became very unfashionable, and this was one of the things I think. In in terms of playing the roadsters against the racing bikes, because the racing bikes, again, uh, there were various variants for road racing and track racing and that sort of thing, which varied from time to time, but always at the very light end of things, typically with drop handlebars and so on. And then you were trying to sell the image of speed to people who were buying roadsters, and typically to the youngsters, you know, the boy racer kind of thing. So you start getting a, a, a drift of terminology. So there became what was known in Britain as the sports bike, and the sports bike was actually a light roadster. So the sort of thing that was sold typically in the 1960s with flat handlebars and so on, and a three-speed gear. wasn't really a sports bike or a tourist bike. Another badge that was put on them, it was a tourist. It was actually a three-speed light roadster. But you have this sort of aspirational thing. You're trying to sell people basic transport, but in their mind they're buying into youth hosteling or racing with Reg Harris and that sort of thing. Because the marketing of these bikes was central. Absolutely, Yes. Um, so let's talk a little bit about some of the things that they were doing in terms of imagery uh, for the bicycle. Mm. You know, these lovely pictures of the 1950s of of, of, the, of the young, perhaps newly married couple or a soon-to-be-married couple um, out in the countryside. He's uh, looking at the map. She's standing up on the on the dry stone wall, pointing ahead to uh, to the church spire in the distance, where they'll probably stop and have a cup of tea. You know, it's presenting a, a kind of bucolic image of cycling mm. in the countryside. Yes, uh, and uh, the, the, you get the, the pattern of uh, marketing varying as well with the time. So that, that what you're just identifying there is, is, is very clear immediately after the Second World War. During the war itself, any marketing that was done uh, latched into things like air raid wardens and that sort of thing, you know, military service and, and, and so on. So you were, you were selling the patriotic element and the war effort element. But as soon as that went, you suddenly get into the pastel shades and the peacetime situation, uh, the husband smoking a pipe, which was a sort of the symbol of established suburban life then. Uh, you get aspirational adverts with um, well-dressed ladies going along with their children with tricycles in a sort of a, um, a solihull kind of atmosphere of uh, stockbrokers, mock Jordan, Georgian houses or mock Tudor houses. Um, yeah, it, 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 it's fascinating the way in which the marketing does try to ride the aspirations of people. And then Reg Harris. Let's talk about Reg Harris. Yeah. Well, uh, of course, uh, speed is always uh, something which is used for marketing with vehicles. You get it with cars. And in the earliest days of, of rally, uh, Bowden was very astute at linking racing into the sale of his bikes, because if the bikes were perceived as being faster, they were perceived as being easier to propel, even if you were just going to ride it down to the shop. So you tended to go for a rally. And he did it in, again in a shaded way. At the top end, he would employ people like Zimmerman, the great American racing uh, cyclist, who became world champion. So he's riding a rally. 
Henri de Grange, who uh, founded the Tour de France. Before he did that, he was riding for rally as well. So you've got that sort of top end, but he would do that right down through the local shops. So there would be local dealerships and local prizes um, at that end. Then you follow that sort of strand right through to the 1950s, the post-war era, and Reg Harris was the great hero, the name that everybody knew. In because the same he's way. an absolute star on the track. Yeah, he was a star in the sort of same way that Sterling Moss was at the same time. Everybody knew who Sterling Moss was, even if they didn't follow Formula One. And uh, Reg Harris, uh, Stanley Matthews, these are the sort of people, you know, if you, you name the top ten sports people, these people would be there. So it's the David Beckham. Absolutely that kind of Or the of Lewis thing. Hamilton of, yeah, of his day. absolutely that sort of thing. And they got him on board to ride for Rally, and he won world championships. And for quite some years, he was involved there. And indeed, they even wanted to have a, a Reg Harris brand. Um, and uh, in the end, that didn't that didn't happen. Reg went off and did his own thing. But what Reg did suggest was that Rally bought into an established top end brand. They'd kind of lost it a little bit. They had had top end bicycles themselves in the interwar years. The Rally Record Ace being a classic model that still occasionally reappears. The American end of Rally were producing a rally record ace only a couple of years ago but um, they had uh, sort of fallen a little bit away from the top end and they needed to buy in the skill or to reinvent it themselves and it was going to be much easier to buy in an established company so Reg Harris suggested buying Carlton and uh, they did that and that formed the basis for the uh, generation of very top end rallies from about 1960 through into the 1980s. I was talking about the history of the rally bicycle company with Tony Hadland In next week's show, we'll continue on and tell the story of Rally's long, slow decline to a point at which it no longer had any manufacturing or assembly of bicycles in the UK at all. All that's left is the Rally brand, which remains a valuable franchise around the world. But for how long? Find out next week. You're tuned to Resonance 104.4 FM. This has been The Bike Show with me, Jack Thurston. Thanks for listening. Goodbye.